0: This is an AMI podcast. The following interview contains mature language and listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, author's talking books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
0: Over the past decade, Andrew F. Sullivan has built a reputation as an author of gritty tales for gritty times. His debut novel, Waste, was described by the Toronto star as Keystone Cops meets Horror in Oshawa. And his latest, The Marigold, is set in a post-climate change Toronto ravaged by extreme weather, unfettered development and a toxic mould that's rising from the groundwater and becoming sentient. It's not a tale for the faint-hearted, but in its often grotesquely funny portrayal of a shiny city being consumed by the very land it stands on, it poses serious questions about mankind's corruption of nature through our relentless pursuit of growth. Before Andrew joins us from his home in Hamilton, Ontario, here's a clip
2: of The Marigold, which is narrated by Sean Patrick Hopkins. Before everything that happened... Before the towers, before the site plans, before the deeds, before the failing sports bar and two bedroom apartment above it that often operated like another, more financially successful, unlicensed sports bar until the police shut it down after that one Polish kid got strangled with a pair of pink stockings behind the abandoned shopper's drug mart a block or two south. There were trees here. Now, there was only a hole a crane perched on the edge, its lights barely illuminating the dirt below. The stooped shape of a man clambered down the sloped side of the pit, dragging a heavy burden over the frozen mud. A short shadow rippled across the dirt as he descended like a lazy bird of prey. The gardener's feet knew the way. His breath emerged in tiny clouds. No wind reached down this far, but the cold stitched itself into everything it touched. Far above the pit, towers scratched at the light polluted sky. Most had undergone the ritual. Paid their dues, if not to the gardener, then to someone else with their own take on his faltering, archaic craft. With spring, the whole would come to life again, thrumming with sweaty bodies and hungry machines, but before that happened, it had to be seeded. An aged protection spell practiced since the bad old days. This was what the gardener was paid to do down here. A pile of bills and an eastern hockey bag waited for him in a vacant condo across the street fives, tens and twenties all mixed together. The money didn't exist outside that hockey bag. It floated in its own reality. The gardener unrolled the tarp, let its wet contents tumble down into the low trench at the very edge of the pit. 17 or 18, the gardener didn't know. Male this time. It didn't matter. Its clothes were burned back in the ravine. A rough image of a bird was tattooed on a shoulder, yellow and orange and dead. Fingernails bitten down to scabbed quicks.
0: Andrew F. Sullivan, welcome to My Life in Books. Thanks for having me, Red. Appreciate being here. The book begins with a quote from former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford Everything is fine, but as listeners might have gathered, everything is not fine in the world of the marigold. And anybody who thinks it is going to be is probably going to come to a sticky end. One of the manifestations of that is that the core is so rotten, sinkholes are beginning to appear at the surface. And that's kind of how you lead us down the rabbit hole of the book, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, Sinkholes are a big part of the story in The Marigold. They are surprisingly common in the city of Toronto. Uh, I think actually... I was on the CBC, which is, you know, the Canadian broadcaster, uh, the day the book came out and a sinkhole had opened on King Street. Um, (laughs) So, you know, you write a near future novel and then the future starts happening. Um, But yeah, a lot of Toronto was actually built up on um, old riverbeds and lake fill and other things. So it's kind of got this sort of unstable, unknown nature to it. And of course, uh, I just kind of ran with that to my worst conclusions.
0: And those riverbeds and sinkholes are the conduits along which the wet is pushing its way further in Toronto. And the wet is a mold, a a sentient mold that is beginning to take over from underneath.
3: Yes. Yeah. The wet is sort of, I mean, people have said, you know, well, where did it come from? How are you inspired? And I was like, well, have you ever (laughs) lived in a basement apartment? (laughs) Have you ever, (laughs) have you ever, you know, you know, gone into a house that smelled strange? Uh, I think it's a really sort of, you know, black mold itself is such a vivid and terrifying thing on its own. So just giving it, you know, awareness, and kind of pushing it a little bit further. I think there's one thing about the Marigold that is very much, um, you know, it's reality with the dials turned to 11. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well yes like
0: all good dystopian literature it holds a black mirror up to our present doesn't it
3: yeah i wanted to have some fun with it uh so there's some you know it's a bit satirical but it is this idea that you know you want things to be plausible and then toss that out the window once people are on your side uh so they're uh you know stretch things a bit further than reality would allow um but still kind of be tethered to you know the foundation of uh you know, the city itself.
0: Yeah, because, of course, I mean, there are parasitic slime moulds and fungi in nature itself. I'm thinking of cordyceps, the zombie ant fungus. So we're not taking too huge a leap of imagination here, really, are we?
3: No, it's, it's sort of just a remixing and, you know, using those things as, you know, metaphors and tools to talk about what's happening to our cities, what's happening with the obvious, um, relentless approach of our climate crisis and, uh, you know, how we sort of get by day to day, uh, kind of, you know, the world's ending and you still have to go to work in the morning. You know, that's always been something that my work has been about is there's huge things happening. And there's people still trying to live in the middle of those things.
0: Yeah, and as you say, one of the inspirations for The Wet is the black moulds that is so much a feature of slum landlords' grotty housing that people have to live in. And Albert Marigold, one of the ageing protagonists of this story, has been a slum landlord. He has made his money out of exploiting people. and the Marigold of the title is this luxury apartment block that he's building as a kind of memorial to himself to try and create something shiny that will stand to make people forget his, his grubby past. And it, too, is becoming overtaken by the mould. And, and it is a death trap, a literal death trap. Much of the action of this novel happens in the Marigold building and is visited upon the rich people who are living there.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and the, you know, the people subletting and scrappling by who, you know, thought maybe this would give them a step up. Um, and then it didn't, you know, that, that were are pursuing that illusion. I think, yeah, that's a big part of it, too, is that there's things, you know, to me, at least in nature or in the wider world that, you know, don't care eventually. Don't care about what the limit of your bank account is, you know, Mm. that, you know, the natural world itself is far more complicated and also deeply uninterested in your status and your humanity. And so when it does come, it comes for everyone. Um, And I think that was sort of part of the thrust of the story, too. Uh, You know, you can only outrun your actions for so long.
0: Yeah, I mean, the cast of residents of the building are new money and old money. You've got people who've made their money out of new apps. You've got an ex hockey player. You've got the daughter of an oil tycoon. And there is that sense that the wet is not the only fungus. These people are, their wealth is a little bit like a mushroom that's popped up overnight. And just like a mushroom, it can be picked off and nobody will really care.
3: Totally. It's very much, uh, there's this idea of, yeah, that these things are, you know, temporary. And, you know, that wealth and life itself is just sort of a brief expression, right? And so, yeah, I totally see that very much as the wealth that can seem so overwhelming and subsuming and also, you know, reinvigorating or creating a new life can also just be zapped or irrelevant, you know, once the lights go on, as soon as... Our material conditions change, our life changes, and that goes for, you know, fungi as well. They need the right environment to survive or to thrive. So that does make total sense when I'm thinking of that uh, tower. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the, you know, the art people have made for it and other things too. And Mm. how each person kind of has their own interpretation of what the wet could be in its final form, you know. And I, I like leaving space for that too, you know seeing how people envision it has been really uh, compelling to me.
0: Like you, I've lived in a damp basement and uh, I-, I could smell it through the pages. <laughs> oh,
3: oh yeah, the smell. Totally. I agree. That's actually, I think, the biggest, you know, it's hard to convey that on the page, but I did try. <laughs> <laughs> old, old water and just this, this lingering, yeah. You can't mistake it for anything else, can you? Exactly, the dankness <laughs>
0: lying behind the pipes underneath the kitchen sink. It's um... <laughs> Now, Albert Marigold is a wily old fox. He's been around the block. He does realise that there is a price to pay for the wealth that you take from the earth. And when we encounter the gardener at the beginning of the book, as we did in that clip... The gardener is planting a seed, a human body, as an ancient ritual, as a kind of peace offering to the earth, which is a, a fascinating idea. And I just wondered where that came from.
3: It's present in like a strangely read, like in a lot of cultures. There's this idea of, you know, putting something into the earth. There's old Irish sort of legends. Um, there's Hungarian stories, there's, you know, some East Asian cultures, the same thing of like, you know, you take from the earth, you put into the earth, but also that you're sort of protecting the place, you know? And then the reverse sometimes of burying a body at a crossroads, so it never knows peace, you know? yeah So this idea of like almost some sort of protection spell, um, I didn't want to get too specific almost because Toronto is such a multicultural place and a place that's at war with itself in a lot of ways and also misinterprets like, you know generations move and then, you know, meaning changes too. So I did want this to be sort of a way that these rich groups sort of attempt to control the narrative or to give themselves meaning. But, uh, you know, the worst cases in record out there are, you know, rumors of people buried alive in the foundation. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And I was like, ah, that's a little bit much for this. I did want it to be, you know, something that the rich could sort of acclimatized to and that could still not draw attention in in the near future just this idea that yeah um you know there is a cost to things and yet at the same time that cost is actually real like when we're seeing like world cup stadiums being built and how many bodies that costs or even an apartment building in the uk or canada um blood is often part of the process whether we want it to be or not you know sometimes you do end up with uh accidental sacrifices on the job
0: and that's very much something that the frontline workers battling to keep the mold at bay kathy and jasmine feel as so many frontline workers are they are underfunded ill-equipped and sent into battle, like, I think you used the expression, shiny minotaurs with only masks for protection. I think that rings quite a bell with a lot of people who would have been working on the front line of health services during the pandemic.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, what was interesting was I started this book in probably... I mean, the idea was 2017. I probably had most of a first draft by... January 2020, and I was ready to sit down and kind of finish it off. And then the pandemic happened or started, you know, it's still so ongoing. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, I don't know how this is going to play out. So I need to maybe take a break from this. And then about two or three months into the pandemic, I was like, oh, no, like governments are reacting the way I thought they would. <laughs> like, And I went full steam ahead and I think finished off the end of the book by August because I like all the things I'd sort of been alluding to through the first 70%. I was like, oh, no, it's people want to hand off responsibility. People want to assume it is not as bad as it is. You know, we are putting people at risk. We are sacrificing people who don't have a voice, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But I felt comfortable with the book. And it also still felt fresh enough to me where obviously there's commentary on the pandemic but it's not this thing that was just written as like a pure reaction to it. So I like having that little bit of distance there. And obviously, yeah, Kathy and Jasmine and their masks and their doomed quest uh, definitely does resonate with me every day uh, as we keep kind of trying to figure shit out. Yeah. yeah, and it
0: certainly sharpens that sense of claustrophobia of so many of the residents of the Marigold are basically hiding out in their decaying luxury apartments. And um, it it feels a lot more present when we know that we've all been locked up in the homes that we've furnished to make ourselves feel at home, but maybe not for 24 hours a day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As I say, some of the characters in the Marigold building are the new money that has come out of... Tech firms and apps, and so on, and so forth. And uh, one of the most striking examples is Sunil, who has founded a kind of curry deliveroo called Fodder. And I love the way that you pull apart the bones of exactly what he has developed. It seems to offer infinite choice, and yet, actually, it only has five dishes on the menu. And that (laughs) lengthy questionnaire that I think all of us have filled out a questionnaire for an app, and we're sitting there going, why are you asking all this information? And suspected that maybe they don't really need our information. They're just selling it on to somebody else. You clearly had great fun having a pop at some of the apps that have irked you over the past few years. Oh, most
3: definitely, Red. Yes, yes. I am a mean and petty man. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, I agree. Yeah, no, no. I think that was a really fun chapter, right? And still try to play with those things. I think, you know, that is the culture that we kind of have been living in. And so I was really happy to kind of pick them apart. I do read quite a bit of tech critical journalism. I feel like a lot of tech journalism for decades was very, oh, wow, check this out. And it's like, yeah, you're saying that because you get access. But, you know, people who are actually looking into, like, where does the money come from, who benefits, all those, you know, wonderful investigative questions that, you know, keep you up at night, maybe. Those were the things I wanted to explore and play with. And, you know, I had, you know, listened to a lot of sort of tech critical podcasts, but that's, you know, something that did feel really true to the book. Toronto is also sort of a tech hub Mm. for Canada. And it's a place where, you know, Google's offices are and everybody else's offices are. And we have Shopify and we have Wealthsimple and we have all these big guys who have big plans until they don't. Yeah. And so, yeah, Sunil's character was sort of poking at that. And it was something that I, yeah, the pandemic really did bring to bear and something I'm seeing in Toronto now, too, where, you know, these apps or these sort of ways of making certain people's lives easier, make many other people's lives very fraught and very dangerous and yes we're all locked up protecting ourselves oh sure but who's delivering that food right who's out there in that weather uh toronto is a city of many weather conditions and (laughs) getting around in it in the worst storms and in the worst situations you know there's a human face to that and there's a human cost to uh And I think that was something I wanted to have in that chapter, too, where we get Sunil's confrontation in the hallway and his sort of (laughs) lack of understanding of who's on the other side of the door.
0: Yeah, it's that great quote that came out of the pandemic, isn't it? That, you know, the pandemic didn't really happen. It was just rich people having nice things delivered to them by poor people. And, (laughs) and, And people become the fodder. The irony of all of this in Sunil's case is that actually he ends up becoming fodder for the system because, without giving a spoiler, the the incident that happens is filmed and that feeds the system and leaves Sunil's future uncertain.
3: Yes, yes. I think one thing that, you know, uh, a friend of mine pointed this out after the book was out for, you know, a month or two, that uh, really the Marigold is like a novel about um, competing systems, you know, and Mm -hmm. the biological versus the technical versus the civic versus the like, it's all these different systems that require humans or humanity to function, whether it's extracting literal blood, or data. It's Different extractive systems attempting to kind of control a city, and most of them coming up short when they finally run into the wet. And so, that's you know, that's something that's throughout the book definitely is sort of this you can try to uh run, uh, but eventually, you know, you are sort of interpolated, right? You do have to, you know, when when an app asks you, do you want to share data, uh, allow or please enter settings to adjust custom choices to i mean you're most of the time you're gonna click allow um but that that choice really is a it's a binary you know you're being interpolated you say yes or you say no but either way you respond yeah
0: and the eminence gris which is lurking behind everything in the marigold is a company called threshold who believe they can monitor and track and run everything and they are gobbling up that data like there's no tomorrow and yet unlike albert marigold they are not prepared to pay the price they're not even prepared to pay their taxes <laughs> wonder where that idea came from
3: <laughs> who who could who could know um yeah that's again sometimes real life is just there being like take it it's good it's good stuff yeah we live in a society i think that's very you know corporations are part of our daily life. We interact with them. They are people that aren't people. And they are, you know, find ways and loopholes to not pull their share. And I think that is something, yes, that the that threshold really is clear about is we're here until you guys make it a problem. You know, um, the idea that they're doing you a favor, uh, I think is something we need to be very aware of and why it's, you know, it's part of this sci-fi jg ballard horror kind of world i'm building is that it's already here it's already how it is but just the fact that you know like they're not doing us a favor we are a product you know we are part of their services and we should be aware of that i don't think we can avoid it often like how do you function without a smartphone these days you don't you can't you you would be lost but just just being very clear that this is not a necessarily a Positive symbiotic relationship.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it also asks the question what would these shiny new tech companies do if they were faced by something more ancient and organic than themselves? How would they try and create applications to harness its power to underpin their own power? And that's a very chilling thought because they're possibly the only people who do have the resources to combat something like the wet, but you suggest that they might not necessarily do that for altruistic reasons.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think uh, I will probably die slightly cynical, uh, (laughs) which is fine. Uh, (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think, honestly, a big aspect of it to me is that companies... Governments, people survive, and we're very good at it by adapting, um, just like fungi do. Fungi are incredible at finding new situations to exploit and are changed by every interaction they have. They, they learn by existing and doing. And people, at their best, do that as an organism. Now, at their best, as a uh, ethical thing maybe not. Uh, But, you know, the idea that we can find that edge, um, that we can reverse a situation to benefit ourselves is very present there and is sort of, you know, manifest without a conscience when you have a board of shareholders. Yeah. uh, When you have a Excel sheet that determines what you do next. So I do think that's definitely part of the novel, too, is, you know, We have this terrible threat and there's already people being like, "Okay, but how does it benefit us? How do we monetize this? What's the best application of this to our purposes? Um, And that's that is fun to think about and horrifying to think about uh, and something I do enjoy playing with in my work for sure.
0: Now, we've been talking about some very weighty existential Issues and the book is pretty visceral in dealing with them at times, but it is also a very, very funny book. There are some laugh out loud moments in it. I'm thinking particularly of The Severed Hand of the Wet, which is really angry at being put in a box. I mean, wonderful, evil, dead imagery coming there. You clearly love your horror and are very well steeped in it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Thank you, Red. Yes. Um, Yeah. Horror is a big part of... I enjoy it. And I I enjoy the possibilities of it. It's also something where I I do want to deploy it in a way that serves the story too, that like pushes it forward. And so having those moments and having, you know, the hand and a certain character, you know, you meet in the sewer, kind of be the heart of the book a bit. Um, That maybe, you know, the worst things are not the inhuman. That maybe... Um, you know that they are maybe severed parts of ourselves, yeah the the hand itself was just uh definitely you're the first one to actually call that out, so very good, um, I love that, I love it, uh it's yeah, there are like little Easter eggs there and little things that are sort of callbacks. I mean, I grew up under the gaze of the c n tower, which is you know the suburbs of Toronto and then Toronto itself, and I still live you know in that circumference and that's the land of you know david cronenberg Mm. that's the land of you know that is our horror legacy here videodrome rabid those older films where that just took place in the city even dead ringers were filmed there but they never do that thing where they're like and then we had a tim hortons donut and went to a (laughs) maple leafs game and then drank maple syrup they just take place there they're just they live there they're 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 a lived in place and they're horrifying too and they're gross you know you look at the fly right and it's this man just actively decaying and i think maybe that's cronenberg's most heartfelt movie Mm. um and yet it's filled with disgusting brutal imagery um and so holding those things uh side by side um and still having jokes and still having fun with it i mean that's kind of what the best horror does for me is it's very human you know dread is there but so is just the ridiculous nature of existence. Um.
0: Yeah, and that wonderful take on what happens if we just do progress for progress's sake. Well, we come up with a self-driving streetcar that is too stupid to know that if it goes through a sewage-filled underpass, it's going to smell of crap for the rest of the time. And, you know, we've all read of the self-drive cars that don't know to stop when they come to a river. And um, you have a lot of fun with those kind of ideas, and it, it's the ridiculousness that happens in plain sight. But you clearly have a problem with raccoons.
3: <laughs> okay, yes. So I have to explain, like a like a Toronto raccoon. Red mm-hmm. is is a unique, sophisticated animal that has. Gone, I swear, on its own evolutionary line. It is bigger and thicker and wilier than any other raccoon. It has learned to thrive in a concrete land that gives it no sustenance beyond garbage. And (laughs) um, it has thrived on that diet. Uh, There was actually in 2018... Uh, They tried to make a raccoon proof uh, green bin because, you know, we do want to compost and take care of our planet and do try to do the right thing. And raccoons were just feasting and breaking into things. So they were like, "Okay, we're going to create these green bins that can't be broken into. And, you know, some people were like, oh, my God, thousands of raccoons will starve and die. Um, That's a tragedy, too. And it's like, well, you know, this is they'll figure it out. They'll go eat berries. And I think it took the raccoons like three weeks to To figure, to be like, oh, you, all you got to do is knock it over and then you put one hand here and the other hand here and you jerk it. And uh, they figured it out. And then they sent their little emissaries around town to be like, hey guys, I know you're frustrated, but just watch my demo. Uh, it costs you no money. Just watch me. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that the Toronto Raccoons are this sort of ongoing, it was also fun for me, right, to have, This sort of ongoing subplot of, wow, humanity's really screwing up. I wonder what the other guys are doing. And the raccoons are sort of picking up the slack. Um, They are communal, but also individuals. Mm. Um, So I do love them, but I also, I fear them. I, (laughs) I, uh, I don't interact with them. You know, you don't want to touch them. They may have rabies. They, you know, if they're out in daylight, there might be something wrong with them. But they are such a part of the urban fabric of Toronto specifically. Like I live an hour outside Toronto now and raccoons are very different here. They're they're not even like I'm an hour away and like the skunks and the possums are kind of like, you guys aren't shit. You're not very good. You're like, we're better at this <laughs> than you. But in Toronto, they've had to learn. And I think that's something I wanted in the book because it is so much of what that city is like.
0: I was gonna say, I think they've been in contact with the London urban foxes because we've got exactly the same problem with our food recycling bins. And there is that sense that come the zombie apocalypse, it's gonna be the foxes that inherit the city.
3: Oh, most definitely. I've seen some news stories and they see, yeah. Right where it's almost like, is it the same breed anymore? Is it, Mm. you know, has it changed shape or consciousness? I mean, it's really exciting stuff to me actually. And I just wanted to layer that through because, you know, cities are still, they're terrain to animals. You know, they're an obstacle to be overcome. You know, crows, coyotes, all those things, like, they're definitely a part of the city. Even at its most concrete, steel and glass, there's still a bird trying to build a nest somewhere in the corner, you know. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, fear and
0: violence are also part of 21st century city life. And there's plenty more of that in your other novels as we will explore after the break.
1: Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111.
0: Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Andrew F. Sullivan, author of The Marigold and also his first novel, Waste, and his short story collection All We Want Is Everything. Andrew, both of those books I've just mentioned, like The Marigold, examine the consequences of human action, uh, particularly in Waste, of trauma for human beings.
3: Yeah, I think that's the idea of... uh, My friends have actually made fun of me and called my collected works Reckonings. Um, So, (laughs) uh, yeah, if I die, just put that on the omnibus. Um, I do think that is a big obsession of mine, is, you know, the actions we take may have large arcs, but they circle back around. And so, yes, my first novel, Waste, the premise is basically you know, what happens when a butcher and a skinhead run over a drug dealer's pet lion? Um, and it's ridiculous. And then I double down on it. Uh, mm, <laughs> and it's yeah. a bit of a fever dream. I, you know, I'm not super interested in perfect realism, but the the vibe and the sensation of a place. And one thing about Ontario, where I'm from, which is the province in Canada, is uh, we have crazily loose zoo laws outside of the major cities. Mm. So if you're not in Toronto or Ottawa, you have um, zoos that are barely regulated and often are just barbed wire on the side of a highway with a sad tiger and a zebra. So the idea that, you know, a lion could escape or be owned, I mean, we basically, for a long time, it may be changing now, but for a long time, we basically had the same zoo laws as, like, the state of Florida and even Oklahoma. So a little bit of Tiger King there before Tiger King. Um, Just this idea of just how loose reality gets almost at the edges, right? Like why is there a line in the middle of the winter on the highway? Well, it can happen. Um, And the consequences of that and the choices you do make and the things you regret and can't take back. I think um, that's an obsession in my work. I think probably some creepy latent Catholicism from my youth um, (laughs) that I'm, you know, battling uh, in the tradition of Graham Greene or somebody that would be ideal. Um, But Characters who have made huge errors in their life and are desperate to find some sort of forgiveness or restitution.
0: But also who might be using violence as a kind of currency because they've got nothing else. They've got no other way out of their situations. It's the only thing they understand, and it's the only way that they can get something that they want.
3: Exactly, yes. There is this level, especially in those first two books, of that sort of desperate need um, and desperate desire to escape that can only be expressed often in physical or vicious terms. And that was something, you know, I've worked many jobs in my life in different ways. And, you know, where I am now is much more comfortable. Um, but a lot of those stories do come from times when I was not or placed things I saw and experienced. Um, and so those books still do feel very true to me. Um There's definitely I have trunk novels that no one will see that are deeply embarrassing, but not those books, because I do feel like they have this core about, you know, that desperation that really is uh, vivid and even still crops up in the marigold. You know, those nights where you you are lying awake and you are wondering, where does the money come from? (laughs) Where 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 is where's my next meal? You know?
0: yeah I mean they also felt a bit like those sort of wild West stories that are born of trauma, born of trying to process that then become almost like urban myths. You have to push them away to be able to process them, and they become they become a story rather than something that actually happened
3: totally. I think that's a big part of almost a culture that I was raised in a bit too of like shooting the shit a little bit. Of, yeah, yeah. You know, like telling a story and you have guys in a circle while you're waiting for the machines to go back up and everybody's throwing out something, you know, that's happened to them or that they saw happen to Buddy over there. That's the villain of Southern Ontario is Buddy over there. Mm. He's always a guy just in the distance who's doing something wrong. You you'd tell him, but he won't listen. And, you know, eventually somebody tells a story that reveals maybe a little too much or exposes a wound uh, that they're not even aware of and maybe the room goes silent a bit or the circle dissipates or you know the supervisor comes by and tells you to get back to work but that there are those moments sort of you know under the veneer of that like you said wild west sort of bravado or arrogance where like a little bit of that humanity might poke out or be exposed for a second or two
0: yeah, and actually the, the, the humanity almost comes as a surprise. You go, <laughs> oh, wow, okay, people can be nice.
3: It's, yes, um... yes, yeah, exactly.
0: Now, your next novel to come out is co-written with Nick Cutter. It's called The Handyman Method, A Tale of Terror. How was it working in collaboration with another author? You, you strike me as a man who who's very happy with his own imagination. <laughs>
3: That's a great way to put it. Yes. Uh, Thanks, Red. Yeah. um, I'm lucky with uh, Nick Cutter, who also writes more literary fiction under the name Craig Davidson. So he has this double identity. And, you know, when I was like, oh, should I get a pen name? He was like, no, you're already weird. It's fine. Um, (laughs) But it's like my stuff does kind of mix a lot of genres. And with Handyman Method, yeah, uh, we'd been friends for about 10 years before he asked me if I wanted to collaborate. And... He was one of these guys who I used to read when I was in the liquor warehouse. I'd be sitting on a box of twine at 2 a.m. You know, somebody come by and try to bust my balls for reading. And I'd be like, I can teach you to read, man, if you don't know how. You know, but I was reading his work when I was really young and still trying to figure out what I wanted to do and working, you know, four to midnight. So he was somebody whose work I had a real comfortable sense of. And so by the time, you know, eight, ten years later, when we start working together, we both respected each other's work. He'd blurbed my earlier books. And it was out of a sense of, like, fun. Um, Try something new. Uh, He'd been so supportive of me that I knew this was like a, you know, a sign of respect. Like, hey, I think you're ready. Like, let's do this. And so we wrote something that I don't think either of us could have written alone. It is very much a story about a man failing to measure up to an ideal that no one really believes in, but that exists in his head and who lets, you know, it's sort of a possession narrative, but, you know, by an algorithm rather than a demon.
0: Do you want to whet the listeners' appetites with the sort of elevator pitch blurb?
3: Sure, let's do that. So the handyman method is sort of this idea of a man named Trent who moves into a new suburb with his wife and child and they're going to, you know, restart their life a bit He's been put on leave at his office after a traumatic event. And so he's left to, you know, get his home in order and be the the first man in this suburb. And right away, things start going wrong. But he doesn't want to admit fault. So he reaches out to the Internet and finds a very helpful YouTube channel called The Handyman Method. And Handyman Hank, gets wonderful host, who's a little bit bumbling and a little bit oafish, but maybe also something else begins to suggest that he could do more, that maybe his life needs to change. And it gets a bit darker from there. So we have this story of what happens when you sort of let the algorithm control your life.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to the audiobook version. It kind of strikes me as one of those ideal collaborations you get two masters of a genre together and strap yourself in for the ride. Now, clearly making books accessible to all is very important to you and Sean Patrick Hopkins did a fantastic job of narrating The Marigold and you didn't exactly give him a particularly easy job. He had a lot of different characters to narrate Including a sentient slime mold character, Cabezas, who he did a brilliant job with.
3: I'm so glad to hear that, Red. I really enjoyed Sean's voice. And, you know, the audiobook itself was a huge challenge, you're right. Uh, Penguin Random House had bought the rights, which was incredible for a small press book uh, from Canada. And, um, you know, I listened to some samples and I had Sean, and I, I really liked the voice. And he has been so supportive of the book. He loved it. And, you know, that's not always happened. It's a job being a, mm. like, you don't, and he has been incredible. And I'm so glad to hear, you know, you listen to a ton of audiobooks. And to hear you say that, it means so much because I really do think what he did was unique. You know, it was a, like, it was a challenge. Like, when they said, who do you want for the audiobook? I was like, whoever you think can handle it. Like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, It's a lot of voices, a lot of characters, and I'm giving you this almost semi-verbal creature who in some ways is the heart of the book, and uh, he does have his own take on it, and like some people do bounce off of it, but I really think it works for this story, and it it really drives home how different and uh, inhuman, in some ways, Cabeza is in the narrative. So that's really wonderful to hear. It was a big deal for me to... Have the audiobooks um, and have them ideally, uh, same thing with Handyman, um, same day release. So yeah. when we put out the Marigold uh, with ECW, Penguin Random House put out um, the Marigold audiobook the exact same day. Sean was super supportive in sharing it and uh, that meant a lot. So having that on same day release, like having you know ebooks for people who need their own accessibility there. Uh, My publisher, ECW, is very aware of those facts. Um, So I was just thrilled, honestly, to have it just be this immediate thing that people could engage with. And so many of my friends in the arts, whether it's accessibility needs for themselves or for people who they want to share it with, you know, just knowing it's there makes it easier for everyone to share the story they already read. Maybe they read the book, but they feel comfortable. Hey, you can pick up the audio. It's fine. It's the same. And uh, my friends who are also in the other arts, like my tattoo artist, uh, who, you know, need an audiobook while they're doing their job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like it really or who just, you know, people who have who struggle with reading or have reading difficulties as well, you know, they still want to participate and they want to read these books. So it's been huge. Um, and it really means a lot to know that, you know, from someone like you read that Sean's conveyed that story so well.
0: Oh, he knocks it out of the park, he really does. And as you say, there was nothing worse than the bad old days where, you know, those of us who listen to our books rather than read them with our eyes had to wait six months a year for the book that everybody else had been talking about so no it's brilliant and it's lovely to know that publishers like ecw and penguin are so committed to simultaneous publications now i'm wondering whether you are a big audiobook fan or whether you'll still want to bury yourself
3: into a paperback i honestly it depends uh how much driving i have to do <laughs> <laughs> uh i was just re- recently listening to the audiobook for the strange by nathan Malingrad, uh just this past weekend um traveling through the states so audiobooks are definitely um i probably still read more physical books but i'm also a monster who listens to music while i write and read oh wow um so <laughs> sometimes with lyrics terrifying stuff um Well, you just listen to the same song 100 times in a row and then the the lyrics don't mean anything. Uh, But um, yeah, yeah, that was just a recent experience literally this weekend um, listening to The Strange, which had a great uh, narrator and really made Nathan's work come alive. Uh, He's one of my favorite writers as well. So it was kind of this really great uh, situation where I just got to experience his work through someone else's voice. uh, And I really loved it. Well, I
0: suppose now it's time to find out whether Nathan makes it into the books of your life. So, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
3: All right, so yeah, I read. I so I was like, oh, am I going to be cool and be like when I was a teenager? I read the Atrocity Exhibition, <laughs> like oh man. Ah, uh, but no. Um, let's be real. So when I was young, I picked up this book, which, you know, your listeners probably are aware of. It was Brian Jack's first one of Redwall. And it had on the cover, there was this rat with a hundred other rats in a horse cart bearing down on an abbey, ready to mess things up. And I was down for it. And um, Brian Jack's work, um, when I was young, it was so, you know, descriptive and You know, I I learned so many different types of currents, you know. There's red currents and black currents. Uh, (laughs) There's so many different ways to serve a flan. I didn't know what a flan was. But um, there was still also, which was great in Books for Kids, my obsessions, consequences, reckonings, returns. You know, characters died. People made bad choices. People made mistakes and had to accept the consequences. And when I say people, I mean mice and stoats and snakes. But um, it really did resonate with me, and I was really into that series, you know, when I a young, young person, someone building a world and filling it, and then saying, okay, but, you know, we're still going to have conflict, we're still going to have problems. And uh, there is that little bit of ter- terror there, too, you know. Clooney the Scourge is still, uh, still quite a nightmare. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, probably my... One that really resonated when I was young and was like, oh, wow, you can do whatever you want, you know.
0: (laughs) And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread?
3: Yeah. So I think, you know, you read The Marigold. So like what's a cozy book for me may not be for other people. But uh, this one has such a surprising way with language and and joy to it, uh, while it's also being horrible. Um is uh Kevin Barry, he's an Irish writer, mm. uh has a novel called City of Bohane, which was a big influence on the Marigold. Uh it's a book where if I see a copy of it in a used bookstore, I just buy it because I'm gonna give it to someone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's I, I need to have three or four copies on hand because I'll just hand it out. Um and I you know, you know you're never getting it back, so just make sure you have extras on hand. Um, Now, if someone spilled coffee over all over it, that's fine, too. I'll get it for $2. But um, it's one of these books that just takes such joy in language. It's like near-future Ireland, kind of, I think, based on Cork a bit. You know, it's vicious and nasty. It's about gang warfare in this near-future city. But the language is beautiful and ridiculous and silly. And you have, you know, different tribes within the city worshipping different entities. You know, there's no longer, uh, you know, Jesus. There's sweet Baba Jay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I always remember like, there's a great part in it where somebody's trying to appeal to this, uh, family that lives in a bunch of tenements and kind of owns part of the city. And he tries to invoke their religion. And the leader says, Oh, don't be bringing sweet Baba Jay into it now. And, <laughs> and I, you know, that just burned in my memory. So yeah, city of Bohane, that's my like, Oh, comfort read slash I'll give it to anybody. Uh, they, even if they don't like it, I'll tell them to read it again.
0: And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners?
3: Yeah. Um. So there's this book. He's a Canadian horror writer, but he's written all kinds of stuff. His name's Naben Ruthnam. He wrote a book called Help Meet, which is, it's a horror book because that's sort of my, where I, you know, dangle my feet But it's also very much more in that tradition of Henry James. So that turn of the screw, it's a 19th century tale with then some Cronenberg thrown into it. So (laughs) it's like, what if Henry James decided that body horror was okay? Um, So it's got this great narrative of a woman taking care of her husband who's been afflicted with a horrible disease that's deteriorating his body. And making him wear away to the point where you know when the syphilis doctor arrives, he's like, "Oh God, I've never seen it this bad before, and no it's not that, it's something else and worse, So it's got this great element of beautiful, almost throwback prose to you know like the great sort of British ghost stories and British horror writers who were a bit more subtle in some ways, mixed with real confrontations with what happens to us when we get old and when our bodies fail us and a little bit of, uh, supernatural as well. So it's a great book. It's really short too. You can blast through it in you know, an hour or two, uh, if you're excited to read it, (laughs) um, (laughs) you might take longer if you're a bit grossed out, but, uh, it's a really great book. It's a recent book. It's a short book, all good things. Um, and it's something that, uh, I don't think you're going to get anywhere else, which is also a big opportunity for a book like that.
0: What's not to like? Well, Andrew S. Sullivan, thank you so much for sharing more of your world with us today, and I will look forward to reading more of your books in the future.
3: Awesome, thank you so much, Rad. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate how you've engaged with the work, so thanks so much.
0: It's time to turn the page on another episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Andrew F. Sullivan, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how.
1: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time.
3: Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to
2: issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube, or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.